0: From India's Largest Newsroom, I'm Arun George, and this is the Times of India podcast. We're quite used to objecting to the use of Ajinomoto or MSG in our food. But for the first time recently, headlines were about Ajinomoto objecting to something. The Ajinomoto company objected to a Tamil film that was titled Ajinomoto. On the 8th of December, the Delhi High Court stopped the release of the Vijayav Setupati Starrer after the Japanese seasoning manufacturer moved court over the infringement of trademark. Ajinomoto is a packet of white salt-like spice mix which can be added to foods. Comedian Nigel Nick, who also goes by the screen character named Uncle Roger, is more than happy to extol its virtues in his videos.
1: MSG. You don't use MSG. How to make good egg fried rice? This is just white people egg fried rice. MSG is the the king of flavor. If you sad in life, use MSG. If you happy in life, use MSG. Put MSG in everything. It'll turn it better. You just get a baby. Put MSG on baby. It'll be better baby, smarter.
0: While the WhatsApp forwards may say that the food we eat is safer when it doesn't have a Ajinomoto or MSG in it, food writer Vikram doctor says that even if we avoid it diligently at the Chinese restaurants, we're probably getting a good smattering of it every time we dig into processed food. In today's episode, Vikram's in conversation with my colleague Jairaj and me about Ajinomoto and how it silently became a part of our diets. Vikram also explains why Ajinomoto has had a history of being targeted and why MSG isn't our biggest worry when it comes to food. So uh, Vikram, we're here because Ajinomoto went to court because the maker of a Tamil film called Ajinomoto claimed it was an ingredient that killed slowly. How did Ajinomoto come to acquire this sort of urban legend status where
1: we came to believe that it, it slowly kills us, well, I, I looked up about this film, which hasn't re- yet been released. And the proposition is sort of interesting. It's, it's called Ajinomoto because it wants to talk about things that feel good. But then are actually turn out to be bad for us. And clearly he's saying that's what Ajinomoto and, you know, sort of food additives like this um, uh, tend to do. Um, so I, I haven't seen the film and I suppose we shouldn't really talk about the film. But it's an interesting twist in this long history of, the vilification of Ajinomoto and food additives like this. I mean, what is happening in India is relatively mild. In 2018, uh, the Supreme Court of Pakistan said that Ajinomoto should be banned. The province of Punjab actually banned the use of Ajinomoto. uh, (laughs) About uh, uh, 10 years back, a Muslim cleric in Indonesia put out a fatwa against Ajinomoto. So this use of Ajinomoto Ajinomoto as a sign of something bad, is very common across the world. I mean, most famously of all, you have what's called Chinese restaurant syndrome, which became a big thing in the US in the 1970s, where people claimed that the use of Ajinomoto uh, by Chinese restaurants was making people feel sick. And that, you know, whole range of symptoms from like, uh, you know, People feeling gaseous and nauseated to, you know, people actually claiming that uh, they they had got depression because of Ajinomoto and really quite uh, far-fetched claims. So we're seeing this is a very long pattern of the use of Ajinomoto, possibly to signify this, you know, unease over larger things.
0: I thought it was interesting you mentioned that there was a guy in Indonesia who banned it because um according to ajinomoto indonesia is one of their five stars yeah. in the asian yeah. <laughs> continent where yeah. they're going to focus on because they yeah. have such high sales over there but i i didn't know there was somebody who'd gone ahead
1: this was a couple of decades back and you know again it it became involved in a re- religious issue somebody started a rumor saying that ajinomoto was 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 produced from pork and hence, it was it was not a halal. So, of course, the Ajinomoto com, uh, company, and this is, we have to recognize the fact that the Ajinomoto company is very practiced at dealing with these sort of issues. They, they you know, did a whole level of, of PR, uh, you know, to show that uh, Ajinomoto uh, does not use pork and that it, it is, in fact, a, a, a halal product. But for all this about Ajinomoto, we seem to know only about this one
0: product of theirs, right? This sprinkling of sort of salt that goes into our food. Did yeah. they
1: actually go beyond that? I mean, uh, Ajinomoto's focus has been very much on, on, on monosodium glutamate. Over the years, they have actually acquired uh, uh, other products. But in fact, uh, in, in about, uh, they've, they've actually focused back on the basic uh, Ajinomoto uh, pro- product, um, uh, You know they've div- they divested themselves of other, other products. So it is a very umami, Ajinomoto, MSG-focused uh, company. And it's definitely not the only company that sells MSG. Actually, MSG is sold in a very wide range of forms. MSG occurs naturally in food. This, this See, this is all the research that the Ajinomoto corporation has thrown up, that they are by no means monopolists for a- a- MSG. MSG does seem to occur naturally in a very wide range of foods and many foods that we have used traditionally to enhance uh, our flavor. So for instance, tomatoes have MSG. And when you cook tomatoes down to a thick you know, tomato puree, you concentrate the MSG, which is why a lot of cooks, especially in restaurants, use you know concentrated tomato puree as a way to boost t- taste. As we know, the most famous example in India is butter chicken. As soon as you add tomato paste, suddenly you got this wonderful savory dish. And that's just one example. Parmesan cheese, for instance, which is used in Italy in such a, such a wide-ranging ways, is used to add a strong umami boost uh, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to pasta. And I don't think a lot of research has been done on this in India, but I think there are definitely indications that there are certain traditional Indian ingredients which are also full of umami. For instance, one in- ingredient which is really interesting is moringa, the drumstick pods, you know, because many of us have un- encountered drumstick in sambar and other dishes and like, you know, what is this strange like thing doing over here that, you know, we can't eat, we have to chew out and, and, and throw uh thing. But if you actually just boil drumstick pods by themselves without anything else, without any sambar powder, nothing else, the broth that you will get is very savory. And it does seem that moringa drumstick pods have been used in Indian cooking as a way to add a sort of umami flavor to it. Similarly, ginger garlic, ginger garlic paste, which we throw into everything, is another uh, product that that is traditional to Indian uh, cooking, or at least now
2: it is, which again may be adding a strong umami taste. Vikram, Ajinomoto, as we know, is the trade name for monosodium glutamate, MSG, uh, which is used as like a food um, taste enhancer. Can you take us through what it really tastes like?
1: Well, uh, th- th- this is the really interesting thing because it's 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 bound up in a, uh, in a in a long history of the development of the understanding of the science of taste. The words ajinomoto actually uh, are a Japanese phrase which means the essence of flavor. The word was coined in the 1910s uh, by a Japanese scientist called Kikuna Ikeda, uh, who was doing research on why certain types of Japanese foods tasted the way they did. And the story he tells is that around 1907, he was having dinner with his family and he was having a soup, this very traditional Japanese soup, you know, called dashi. And it occurred to him that this tasted different. It tasted like more rich, more savory uh, it, it, than it normally did. And he asked his wife, I guess, like, you know, what did she put in it? And she said, well, you know, she should put in seaweed uh, and also this thing called katsuoboshi, which is like a shaved, dried tuna. And this seemed to make the, 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 the taste much more savory. It was not the standard sweet, salt, sour, bitter, you know, those four tastes, which across the world have been seen as, as a four basic essential tastes. This seemed to be something different. And he started analyzing uh, seaweed and, and, you know, katsuoboshi, and he isolated what, what were called glutamic salts. Now, he was not the first scientist to, to have done this. Um, about 40 years earlier, a German scientist called Karl-Heinz Ritholsen had also isolated uh, glutamate by uh, applying uh, sulfuric acid to wheat gluten, hence the term that he coined glutamate. And what the substance, glutamic acid, seems to do is that it it signals the presence of something very savory, which is usually found in proteins. And one of the theories that flavor scientists and scientists of, of chemistry have, have put forth is that one reason that humans uh, develop this ability to, to sense uh, glutamate, uh, what also Ikeda coined as a, as as a flavor called umami, which means savory, was because it signalized the presence of proteins, and we need proteins in our diet. Just like you know, we developed the taste receptors for sweetness to signal that something uh, was, was was there were sugars because we need sugars for energy. We also need protein. So the the theory, and it's still you know a theory. That humans developed umami receptors to signalize, uh, which will trigger us to the presence of glutamates, which which triggers the presence of proteins. So th- th- this is the theory, and you know a lot of uh, uh, a lot of the, the understanding of taste is still very much evolving. In fact, the identification of, of of umami receptors has actually thrown up a floodgate because scientists have started finding receptors for other tastes. So like just like umami, there are now receptors. They're theorizing that there are receptors for fatty tastes and for metallic tastes and a whole range of of other tastes. And this is actually a very evolving branch of of food science. And the other thing Ikeda did, which was very critical, was that he was actually a very smart businessman. He very quickly saw the business potential in this. And he tied up with this pharmaceutical company called the Suzuki Corporation to form a company which later became called the Ajinomoto Corporation, which is now a real powerhouse of, of flavor science across the world. It's still a really big company, and it's put a lot of money into promoting the science of umami and the understanding of what you know glutamates does. This is a bit controversial because you do have some scientists who say that a lot of this has been invented basically to, to suit the Ajinomoto Corporation. Um, and it's true that this, in the involvement of the Ajinomoto Corporation in research efforts about umami is problematic. But the fact is, a lot of the science does seem to seem to stack up. So, yes, it does benefit the Ajinomoto Corporation, but it also
2: does show that
1: umami does seem to be a real thing.
2: Vikram, how did then um, Ajinomoto become sort of a household product in India?
1: Very soon after Ikeda started the Ajinomoto Corporation... Uh, he uh, started, he and the Suzuki company, which was behind it, which later changed his name to the Ajinomoto Corporation, started marketing in a big way. And you know, one of the ironies is that it's associated with Chinese food, but actually it is not particularly uh, traditional to China. China has only used it since the 1920s. And the way it spread from Japan is really interesting. So first it was popularized in Japan and they focused on households. Then they started selling it in Taiwan. And you have to remember that at that time, Taiwan was a colony of Japan. It was popularized in Taiwan as an ingredient for street food sellers. So street food sellers were, were used uh, this MSG powder, Ajinomoto powder, as a way to quickly add flavor to noodles and anything else they were selling. And from Taiwan, they started uh, uh, selling it in China. What's interesting is that there was actually resistance. The Chinese actually saw the J- Japanese as a threatening imperial power. There was resistance to the use of Ajinomoto as a Japanese product. What seems to be really interesting is that the one community that took to it first were the Buddhists. Because the Buddhists in in China have always struggled to to push a vegetarian cuisine using uh, all sorts of products uh, made made out of wheat and starch and things like that. And they realized that Ajinomoto was the the one ingredient that could give vegetarian foods that sort of meaty taste that so many Chinese people wanted. So actually, the Ajinomoto Corporation found a lot of success with the Buddhist community uh, in China. And from there, it spread, it became sort of more popular across China. But... As I said, this only happens in the 1920s. And for, and for it to be used to vilify Chinese food in general is really a bit like sad.
0: But, but it's a very key ingredient even in Indian Chinese, right? We associate it with Ajinomoto so much to the extent that Chinese restaurants would start saying no Ajinomoto in dishes <laughs> just to convince yeah. us that it's okay to have it.
1: Yeah, but the corporation only really started selling in India from around 1954 onwards when we say Chinese restaurants, what are Chinese restaurants? I mean, if you go to Calcutta, yes, there is a long standing history of the Chinese community in in Tanga. But in most of the rest of India, the Chinese community has opened Chinese restaurants opportunistically. And often often we also know it's not even, they're not even run by Chinese. They're just people from the Northeast who because we're racist, we call Chinese and they sort of turn our racism into an opportunity and and start selling Chinese food for people who who don't know better. And they are Producing, you know, ingredients based on whatever they learn. So they, they've learned from someone that, you know, there is this powder that makes food more, uh, that makes food, food more tasty. But, you know, one thing needs to be said here, that it's completely wrong to think that it's only Chinese restaurants uh, and Chinese food that use it. Actually, the whole food processing industry uses mon- monosodium glutamate in a big way. Chinese restaurants are actually just a fraction of it. And what the food industry has done is that it's realized that monosodium glutamate is just too useful as a flavor enhancer not to use. But yes, people have this prejudice against it. So they they find ways to disguise its use. The number one way, for instance, is they just use what are called E numbers. So if you look at the food labels on most processed foods, you'll find in tiny, tiny print, a lot of like technical terms and numbers. And those numbers are ways you can, you can actually go online and, and find out what those numbers mean. So if you see a number called E621, E six two one, that's actually the term for monosodium glutamate. So the easiest way to cover up the use of uh, of MSG is just to say E621. Similarly, there are other products. Another product you'll often find in tiny letters on food labels is something called Thorula East. And Thorula East is just another way of, of, of MSG. It's just a way of producing MSG. Uh, so there are a whole range of products. Hydrolyzed uh, 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 wheat gluten, for instance, is, an, is another one. These are just terms for the ways in which MSG is produced. But as I said, the vast majority of the MSG that we eat and which has very little problems for us comes through food, uh, processed food products. Could you explain which are these food products? Like what, what is the food Everything. product that you eat? Everything. I mean, noodles—whether it's Maggie noodles or any times a type of like uh, you know ramen noodles—definitely uh, has has MSG, some kind of MSG type product in the flavor enhancer. Uh, any really savory food, uh, processed food, you know, like uh, you know cheese biscuits or something like that, will have uh, a, a MSG. MSG in it. What about uh,
2: its addictive principles? Again,
1: this is a bit unclear. And, you know, this is where the Times archives is really interesting because I did a search through the Times archives for the use of MSG. And again, you you get a very clear timeline about how its use and how, you know, its use has been used for political purposes uh, uh, comes up. Um, and one nutritionist, I think, inadvertently said uh, says something very telling. She says that oh, the real problem with MSG is that it makes everything taste delicious, and you eat too much food. And in a, in a sense, maybe that is the problem with MSG is that it makes things taste good. So in in a, in, a, in a sense, if there's a problem with MSG and food additives in general, it is that that they make food taste good, and we overeat. Now, whether that means we're addictive or we just or we just can't control ourselves is is, is another matter. But um, a lot of the, the 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 sort of propaganda around MSG is really talking about something else. So, for instance, the first time MSG becomes a public sort of issue in India is uh, around uh, is, a, is when KFC enters India, which is around 1995. Now, 1995 Kentucky Fried Chicken comes to India, and it's the first one of the first big international fast food chains. This is before McDonald's, and it's and it sets up in Bangalore, and. It's seen as the harbinger of a huge new chain, a huge new invasion by international food chains. And as a result of which, the Swadeshi Jagran Munch and the similar K- K- Karnataka organizations all start this huge battle against KFC. And among the many things that they they, they, they find to complain about is its alleged use of MSG. Um, and uh, this becomes a big issue. Uh, they, they take it to court so the Bangalore municipality uh, bans the use of MSG for 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 a while, and this becomes this, this big battle. But what's interesting is by the end of the year, the end of 1995, there's another report in the Times of India that shows the Indian government is quietly changing the acceptable level of MSG because it realizes that this is an important product and it needs and it needs to be used by the food processing industry, which is needed for the development of the agricultural sector. But these battles keep coming again and again and again and again. And in a sense, people are not really protesting MSG. In the case of KFC, they were protesting the westernization and the introduction of like of, uh, of, of food chains. The Americans who developed this thing called Chinese restaurant, uh, restaurant syndrome were frankly being racist. I mean, they were uh, uh, attacking uh, the, the growth of Chinese food because it was not seen as the sort of thing that white Americans uh, would eat. I mean, what's really interesting about Chinese restaurant syndrome is that it's traceable back to a letter Uh, written in 1968 uh, to the New England Journal of Medicine. And what's really interesting about it is that it was written by a Chinese doctor whose name was Dr. Robert Ho Man Kwok, who actually is protesting uh, to the the New England Journal of Medicine uh, the way American Chinese restaurants make Chinese food. And in his letter, he says that, you know, American Chinese restaurants are making Chinese food so badly. And one of the reasons they're using it so badly is because Uh, they are using this thing called MSG. Now, this is actually very telling. This is a Chinese person uh, protesting the use of MSG by American Chinese restaurants. But the thing is, that letter and that idea of of MSG just just gets taken up. And suddenly, a lot of people start writing to the New England Journal of Medicine, which is a very prominent and important publication, protesting the, the, the Chinese restaurant syndrome. But are they really feeling sick because of Chinese food? Or are they just protesting the growth of you know, non Anglocentric food. And it's clear that from some of these letters that there is a very strong level of racism. The other problem, and again, this comes up a lot with MSG, is that it's easy to focus on MSG as a problem and as a way to not deal with the larger, more complex issues. So for instance, in many cases, uh, what people are protesting is how street vendors use MSG, and they use them too much. But and people are falling sick. Now, people might be falling sick of, uh, because of eating the food, but it's because street vendors are forced to use some of the cheapest foods around. The restaurants that, that might use MSG might be restaurants that are using really bad oils or reusing the oils or, or using really cheap quality food. And it's these larger problems of why restaurants like this are forced to uh, you know, use really cheap food uh, why we can't get better quality oils into the system, which are really the issue. But it's too complicated. You have to tackle too many issues to, tackle, to talk about uh, all those issues. So it's easier just to focus on MSG.
2: Vikram, I just want you to... Um, I know that you spoke about this earlier in our conversation, but can you tell us about this possibility of now discovering more tastes? You know, the 50s has sort of opened the frontiers to, to there being many more. Uh, where are we in, in that journey?
1: It's really fascinating. This is an area of food science which is changing rapidly. If you look back, it's more than a century now since Dr. Ikeda uh, identified glutamates and started the Ajinomoto Corporation. And then for decades, the Ajinomoto Corporation asked scientists, uh, uh, petition scientists, paid scientists even, to see if there was any kind of thing like an umami taste receptor And ultimately, scientists did find an umami taste receptor. After that, the the field has exploded. So the next, they found a possible receptor for fats. For that sort of fat, you know, deeply, you know, taste that you get when you eat something with with a lot of fats. Then they found receptors for something metallic. Um, But, you know, all this is very unclear. What scientists are realizing is that taste is incredibly complicated. You know, nobody knows how these receptors work, exactly how they work in association with each other. There are some people who claim that this whole science is flawed from the start because of the uh, involvement of the Ajinomoto Corporation. So it's a very complicated issue.
0: And when it comes to ingredients that are reviled, now have maybe sugar, but is Ajinomoto among those in that sort of high pantheon of ingredients that is just reviled across the board for no explicable reason in some ways?
1: I would say yes. And, uh, you know, the people who are who are agitating against Ajinomoto, some of them have different agendas. Some of them uh, are people who just dislike the idea of processed foods in general uh, and say that we should all eat, you know, pure, clean foods. This idea of clean foods has come up. On a certain philosophical level, you can't disagree. Yes, people should eat better, purer, natural clean foods. But there are real costs to this. The reason people are eating processed foods is because processed foods are cheap and people are poor. And all people want a kick for the taste, you know. It's all very well to say eat, just eat like really bland, cheap food, but no, nobody wants to do that. We're all human. We want to eat something tasty. So um, it's 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 not easy. At the same time, uh, it's true that the, the that the food processing industry is huge and is putting lots of money into you know getting us to eat like you know chips and snacks and oily processed foods and. None of that is good if we overeat. This is the the real issue. I mean, like, you know, none of these foods may be bad per se. It's it's why we
2: overeat them. The brands often become synonymous with the products that they sell. Like Bisleri is known for right. as as so is for mineral water, right? So yeah. isn't it exactly what uh, Moto should not be having a problem with that they are synonymous with the MSG today
1: well it's obviously a double-edged uh, double-edged sword for them i mean um, but you know the ajinomoto Co- Co- corporation is huge and uh, yes it's it is also in itself supplying ajinomoto products to the, the other food processing companies that that, that that are using them so you know net net from a time from the discovery by one japanese scientist in the 1910s to becoming this this huge company that it is today i mean msg has been very good for the ajinomoto uh, company and the ajinomoto company has been very good for msg I mean, these sort of blips happen now and then, but in the time scale of all the issues that have come and gone with Ajinomoto, I mean, this film is just going to be a minor one. There is no competitor to this
0: because, I mean, technically, just dissolving of wheat course, in uh, hydrochloric
1: yeah. As I said, like uh, you know, many companies uh, sell it. I mean. Maggi itself has something called Maggi Seasoning, which is very big in in Europe. The Knorr company, which is now owned by uh, Unilever, again has a a seasoning product. The soup cubes that they sell, all of this is is full of uh, MSG. And the thing is, it's not necessarily, some of it may be uh, chemically produced, but some of it is actually naturally produced. I mean, if you go back, the first use of glutamates actually comes way before the Japanese in the 1940s a German scientist called Juicester von Liebig was the one who first produced the sort of bouillon cube, soup cubes, meat extract, which he did just by boiling down meat. He devised a process for this thing. Now, it was intensely savory. And we know today that it is savory because it's it's full of glutamates. And one of Liebig's associates was exactly the German scientist, uh, Ritter Horsen, uh, who first uh, isolated glutamates. So it's use predates Ajinomoto. I mean, as I said, Ajinomoto has just been the flag bearer for MSG. Um, but yeah, it's used very generally.
0: But nobody sells it as like this spice mix that you can use. And, and it's called <laughs> just... Nobody else has a Ajinomoto corporation.
1: Yeah, I suppose that, that's, uh, that's useful for the whole food industry. But people Ooh. are using it in different ways. One of the most fascinating uses I, I've, I've heard about is people using Ajinomoto or MSG in cocktails. Mixologists are always trying to come up with new innovative things. And one thing that, that cocktail makers are trying to do is to come up with savory cocktails. I mean, I just have a friend down the road who makes fennies and he he's comes up with all these flavored fennies and he's coming up with a choriz flavored fennie. You know, which, which which is flavored with something like that. Now, all this uses savory tastes, including MSG in some ways. And some mixologists actually go uh, leapfrog and use MSG directly uh, in Cannes. In, so you can have an MSG martini, which, is, which tastes like sort of savory. So, you know, the, the uses of MSG are not going to stop, whether it's challenged by a film or not. <laughs>
2: Today's episode was produced by
0: Jairad Singh, Sunai Marathe and Anuja Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We're available on Plus, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, email us at podcast at timesinternet.in